Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You. I'm Ellen Trackman here with Jennifer White. I'm here. <laughs> and today, like many days, we do like to talk about sperm. Every day we talk about um, sperm. <laughs> aside from like not real sperm, Jen, we go to a lot of events where they have sperm as swag, which mm-hmm. we also give out sperm as swag. We have like sperm shaped squeezies we like to give out that people find yes. amusing. Um, but other people give out similar or different sperm swag. What Tell me, what is your favorite sperm swag that you've received? Oh my goodness, that is um, that can be tough. I I have a shirt that is designed. It looks like a unicorn, and all of the the pixels that make up the unicorn are actually sperms. So I think that's one of my Classy. favorite. I I wear it all the time. But you don't know it's sperms unless you. I tell closely. you it's sperms. Yeah. So um, oh. the other one is I feel like. I mean, a favorite we've done is like we gave out cookies at an event once that were sperm shaped oh. cookies. I they like that we awesome. and then we upped our game because the next year we had uterus cookies and egg we cookies. We did have uterus like cookies was, also. It was pretty awesome. The eggs don't yeah. look very exciting, so they just kind of look round. around. But I know but the uterus cookies. Yeah. I feel like were a big jump. Yeah. What about you? What's your favorite? Um, there's been some pretty good ones. Like there's uh the glow in the dark sperm keychain mm-hmm. and the giggling sperm. The giggling sperm. I was just going to say, I like I collect I those all the time. I whatever, the company that gives them out, like every event, it's a different color. A different color. So I have like five sitting next to me right I now. I got yeah. like sparkly purple giggling sperm last time. And that was pretty special. I, I do. And actually, if you keep talking, I'm going to go over and roll over and get it and I'll make it giggle into no, the No, it doesn't stop. It goes really long. Don't, <laughs> don't it. It's so awesome, it's though. Exciting. Oh, my God. Do you have it? I do have it. You guys ready? Okay. Ready. Okay. Okay, good. We're good. No. Okay. Okay. Oh, you made it stop. Good job. I did make it stop. Uh, um, but my favorite is when I go through the airport and those are in my suitcase and something sits on it and my uh, my suitcase starts to giggle. Oh my god. Uh, well, speaking of sperm and more specifically talking about sperm donation, we have the one of the experts in the area in terms of um, starting an organization that connects those who are donor conceived, which includes um, egg and embryo donation, but a lot of it's still sperm donation. Um, She's been on Oprah. She's kind of um, well known and out there and has um, some really strong opinions that we're excited to, to hear more about. And that is Wendy Kramer. Welcome Wendy Kramer to the show. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So, Wendy, we feel very, very fortunate to have you. I know you've been on Oprah and Good Morning America and have TV shows, so you are truly a celebrity in this area, to us at least. Um, what Can I ask you, what was your favorite of all those, all the, the big time shows you've done? What was what was the most enjoyable or interesting? Like, how, how was meeting Oprah? Um pretty thrilling back at the, oh, <laughs> at the time well awesome. because yeah. she came well we did Oprah twice so the first one <sighs> Ryan was only 12 and she oh, wow. interviewed him and then after oh. the show was over she made her way through the audience just to come over and shake his hand and oh, that was like really thrilling because so she shook my hand and it was one of those two-handed handshakes and she just looked, looked at me as she was shaking my hand and said ryan's mom ryan's mom <laughs> and <that> was, <laughs> i was like okay i don't ever have to do any more media that was it oh, <laughs> oh that's incredible that's really sweet and then what was the second time how how many years later uh, we did it in 2003, and then again, um, a show we put together in 2008 that had uh, sperm donors and parents and donor-conceived people, so it was a more comprehensive show that really yeah. tackled the issues. We showed uh, a half-brother and sister meeting, so it kind of showed wow. everything and highlighted the issues, and it was really informative and really well done, so I was very happy with it. Yay, okay. Does she so, remember you as Ryan's mom, though? That's the important right. Question. Do you have a name yet? Well, yes, because you know what? At the National Democratic Convention that was in Denver, we Ryan and I were sitting in seats, and the press box was right behind our heads. We were right up against it, 
And when we, we stood up and we turned around to look in the box and there's Oprah and Gail sitting two rows behind us. So Ryan and I stood up on our seats and when Oprah, Oprah, remember Wendy and Ryan sperm donation. And she puts (laughs) her hands up and I got a picture of her hands up. Ah, Wendy and Ryan. (laughs) And it was so cool. That's so cool. Oh, I love it. Wow. Okay. So for those of you, so those out there who don't know who you are and how you got to Oprah, if we could just backtrack a little bit. And um, I know you've told your story so many times, but if you don't mind sharing it one more time for our listeners, what brought you to Oprah? How did we get there? Sure. So let's see. The nutshell version is uh, in the late 80s, I was married. My ex-husband had infertility issues. So in September of 1989, I got pregnant using a donor. And so in May 1990, Ryan was born. Shortly after, my ex-husband and I split up and I became an only parent. And so then when Ryan was in preschool, he was only two years old. He came home from school one day and said, so did my dad die or what? And basically he had seen (laughs) moms and dads and he didn't he didn't understand. Some people had moms, some people had dads, like, why didn't he have a dad? So it was at that point that we had the initial conversation, you know, the sperm and the egg. It was a two-year-old conversation. It lasted about 30 seconds, but it was an important conversation because it was the cornerstone. It was from that conversation that every future conversation was based upon. Um, and so as he grew had up, you, was, had you thought before he came home with that question, were you ready? Like, had you thought like, as soon as this comes up, I'm going to tell him, or were you kind of like, Oh, okay. Like, here we go. Everything that I had been told or had read. And back then there was only one book called lethal secrets by Annette Barron. Oh. Everything I had read said, you know, when a child is five or six, they might start to ask questions. So yeah. I thought I had years before. I had <laughs> right. Tablet. Right. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is happening already. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, I guess we're doing this now. And, uh, and so then, then we had a basis for which whenever he saw new traits, you know, that weren't, he didn't see in me or my family or interests or talents or things like that, um, we would then pull out the donor profile um, and and try to put the pieces together for him. But he was so curious that by the time he was six, he was looking at me saying, I want to know my biological father. And I, at that point, I'm thinking, oh my God, what do I do? What have I done? Um, and so we kind of muddled along. I would call the sperm bank and the clinic and nobody would help us with any information. And, and he was thinking, okay, what if I have half siblings out there? What if they want to know me and I want to know them? There's no way for us to connect. And what if my donor, even though he had to be anonymous, you know, back in the late 80s, maybe he changed his mind. What if he wants to know me? Like, how will I ever know that? And so we had to kind of wait for the internet. And so <laughs> finally, these are really he, mature thoughts for a, a young kid. Don't too. worry, the internet's going to come. Really up. deep thoughts, yeah. yeah. Well, of course, but I mean, as we know, you know, he's not the only. Back then, we wondered: is he the only curious donor-conceived person? So, in 2000, social media started, and it was basically Yahoo groups. So we started a Yahoo group, thinking. Hmm, maybe there are other curious donor-conceived people. Maybe donors have a change of heart. Maybe parents want to find half-siblings for their kids. And so we started the donor sibling registry and it was slow going the first couple of years. I think we had less than 40 members and then we started getting media. So once people saw us, it was like, it was a, a shift where people for for the first time, realized they had the right to be curious, the right to search for, and the right to find and then define these relationships for themselves. Yeah. And that exploded from there. And then we were off and running. You know, we had media starting with um, local NBC media in November of 2002. Two weeks later, we were being interviewed by Diane Sawyer on Good Morning America the next year was Oprah. I mean, it was just bum, 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 60 minutes. We did 
everything. And it's just, you know, thank God we were, we had the media available to us before the media kind of became what it is now, which is not too effective for anything. But we had the first, you know, 15 years of the DSR really utilizing that media exposure. Um, and it really worked for us and it worked for the thousands of people who were able to find and then connect on the donor sibling registry. And for those who don't know, what is the donor sibling registry? So the donor sibling registry is the organization that my son and I founded. It was started as a Yahoo group. Then in 2003, we became a nonprofit, a 501c3. And our mission is to educate, connect, and support all those in the donor family. So intended parents, parents, sperm and egg donors, and most importantly, donor-conceived people. And how do you do that? Well, we connect people on the Donor Sibling Registry website. So we have uh, pretty complicated databases and a matching system. And of our 65,000 members, we've connected more than 17,000 people with their half-siblings and their biological parents. Uh, The educating is we've conducted and published more than two dozen academic papers and peer-reviewed journals. So we've done studies on donor-conceived people, egg donor parents, sperm donor parents, egg donors, sperm donors, even the parents of donors, the, the donor grandparents. We've surveyed and published research on all the stakeholders. And then support, we have... Um, We do consulting. We speak to people all day long. We have outreach. We present research at uh, reproductive medicine, um, legal conferences, all kinds of conferences around the world. So we're helping to educate all those in the community. So the stakeholders and um, also the reproductive medicine industry who just does not want to take into consideration donor-conceived people and and what it means for them to be cut off from their ancestry, their medical backgrounds, and their first and second degree genetic relatives. Wow. And all that research, I mean, I know I'm showing a ton of data. What are the huge takeaways that might be really informative or surprising to, to people? Well, I think the first, the big takeaway is that for many decades, I mean, we have donor-conceived people on the DSR born all the way back in the 1940s. So this is not new. You know, donor conception has been going on for decades, probably even before the 40s. Um, But what we know is that this whole setup of anonymity doesn't work for anybody. And it's the way that the industry's been run still In this day and age, today, every single donor gamete, every single egg and sperm is sold as anonymous, be it for 18 years or forever. And what we know now and what we've learned through research and through, you know, 19 years of hearing stories and testimonials and and counseling and outreach, we know that anonymity doesn't serve the best interests of the donor-conceived people. So for years, it's been about the rights of the industry to sell the gametes, the rights of donors to be anonymous, the rights of parents to have a child. So what we're, we're put, the agenda that we're pushing is that the rights and the needs of donor-conceived people need to be not only included in the conversation, but we think should be should lead off the conversation. Yeah. Wow. Are you seeing some level of shift? I mean, for example, I, I know of an agency, a, a donor egg agency that actually has completely changed their model and they do not do anonymous or unknown donations anymore. So are you seeing that shift too? I mean, I know it's slow, but, but are you seeing some of it trending that direction? Yeah, the, so the only piece of good news that I have as far as seeing a shift or any kind of an acknowledgement is we have now more than two dozen egg agencies uh, and clinics that actually write the donor sibling registry into their contracts between recipients and donors so that recipients and donors can act right from pregnancy or birth on the DSR. So they can do that. They can remain private to each other if they want, but still have the ability 
to share and update medical information, photos, messages, or, you know, so what it's doing is it's empowering parents and donors to define those relationships for themselves uh, without a middleman standing between them saying, we know it's best for your families. And that is to keep you from knowing each other. We know that that's like, it's a, it's a really outdated concept. Why not connect these people right from pregnancy or birth? If they want to just connect once a year through the DSR and update medical information, they can do that. If they want to share phone numbers and meet at Starbucks tomorrow, they can do that too. The point is they themselves get to define the relationship without an egg clinic telling them what's best for them and their family. And you just answered my question before I even asked it. So that's what I was going to say. So just because you register with the DSR does not mean that you automatically must go have a joyful reunion at a Starbucks. It it just gives you the opportunity because you're registered on it that you you have those abilities to to connect with each other in some of way, course, whatever some you people, define that is. Yeah. I mean, some people take a while. It's like, well, let's just communicate, you know, via email. They want to dip their toes in the water. They want to explore the relationship. They want to feel comfortable. Some people feel comfortable right away. Some people, it may take weeks or months or even a year or two before they say, you know what? The fears that I have are not warranted because I think still this industry puts fear into donors and recipients. They tell uh, donors, you know, the recipients are going to uh, disrupt your life and your family. Um, they they tell recipients that donors like are going to want to be parents to your children. So all of these really false fears are perpetuated by the reproductive industry, and that's how they get to maintain this whole umbrella of anonymity because they fuel it with fear. But once you dispel those fears, like donors don't want to be your kid's parent, parents don't want to disrupt your life, like you dispel all of these fears and then all that's left is, oh my God, what's in the best interest of my child and how can I best serve the needs of my child? And that is never to be uh, have an anonymous situation that completely disempowers a child from knowing anything about their who they're related to and their medical backgrounds, their ancestry, parts that are very big pieces of their own identity. Yeah, no, that's a really i I had a somebody recently we had on, and she said that she felt like she was being accused of the slowest kidnapping attempt ever <laughs> as an egg donor. She's like, this is not a long con to, to kidnap your kid. Yeah, she's like, I'm you. not trying to take your child, you know? I just want to know you. And and they did, and they had a very successful open um, open donation, and she got to meet the children afterwards, which was really empowering for her. So it is wonderful to see that, and we are seeing we are seeing at least some of that shift as well. And I spend a lot of time talking about the donor sibling registry when things kind of start out this anonymous, like, well, is there a way to connect? What makes sense? Do you mind diving in a little bit more into the detail? Because people say, like, what does that what does that look like? How does it work that they don't have necessarily my name and address right away, but we can still communicate? How does the donor sibling registry work from that kind of first contact? Right. So we work very hard at protecting everyone's privacy on the donor sibling registry. So nobody sees anyone's personal contact information, name, email address, or anything. When people connect on the DSR, it is just through a username, you know, mom123, egg donor789, you know, whatever. And so each person gets to decide when and if they're going to share their personal contact information. But until they decide that, we allow them to share photos and messages and medical information. Basically, they can share any and all information and be in touch while we're remaining uh, private to one another. So that allows everyone to come at this at their own speed. Makes sense. Uh, And a question that always comes up is how is it paid for? So, uh, yeah, we are a 501c3 charity. We have no outside funding. For the first five years, I built the DSR and ran it with my own money, um, along with a few small donations. And after the first five years, I I just couldn't do it. I mean, I was like an only parent putting my kid through college (laughs) all by myself. And I was like, I can't do this. So, 
in 2005, I finally turned to my members and said, okay, you guys have to help me. If we're going to build this thing and keep it growing, I need to turn you know, to my members for help. So at that point, we started a yearly fee which was $25 a year. Um, that is up to $99 a year now. So members um, can pay either $99 for one year or $199, and that's permanent membership, so they never pay again. Um, and those are the fees that allow us to keep growing. Um, we're using a lot of those um, fees currently to rebuild our website, so it, it allows us to keep connecting, educating, and supporting donor families and all the things that we do. Great. And for the donors, I know often in our agreements, the donor doesn't have to pay. Do you want to explain how that works, at least in some agreements? Yeah. So, I mean, we have thousands of egg and sperm donors on the DSR. Many have joined because they themselves are curious or they have medical information to share or um, you know, they, they're just really looking to connect. So many donors join the DSR and pay for their own membership. We also have another group of donors, um, and this is just egg donors because not one single sperm bank will uh, offer this policy to their sperm donors. But the egg donors who have clinics who are open, like Oregon Reproductive Medicine, San Diego Fertility, those are the two big ones. They're sending egg donors and parents to us uh, weekly, if not daily. Um, so the agreements uh, for the egg donors and the recipients are that the recipient joins as a permanent member, they add their posting, and then they also pay for the egg donors membership, that 199 also. And that allows the donor to come on, add her posting, they get to connect. So the way that it works for most people is that the recipients are paying for their own membership and the egg donors. Um, but like I say, many egg donors see the importance of making these connections and they come on, you know, they join themselves as well. Yeah. Uh, and I know that you have so many of these donors and and the parents calling you with this so interesting and unique stories. Do you mind sharing some of those? I mean, some of the ones have been in the news are just the amazing number of groups of sib like half siblings that are being found where it's hundreds of people related to one donor. Right. So because there's no oversight and almost no regulation in this industry, it allows for the, for the fact that there is no record keeping. So no sperm bank has accurate record keeping on how many kids are born for any one donor. So we have at this point, and these are fluid numbers, these, these groups are growing all the time, uh, many groups of more than 100 half-siblings, all the way up to somewhere around 200. So those are the people that we hear from a lot. I mean, we hear you know, from parents who are coming to the DSR, they're shocked to see that their kid has 30 half-siblings because they were told no more than 10. Donors sometime, my donor was promised no more than 10, and my son's group just hit 20 last month. So they're kind of shocked because what's being uncovered at this point and I think for many years on the donor sibling registry is that all of the lies that this industry has told to both parents and donors at the front door, um, you know, we're kind of lifting the rug and everyone's seeing the dirty secrets that the industry has swept under the rug for decades because there was no way they could be found out. But now with the donor sibling registry, with DNA testing, all of these dirty secrets and these lies that they continue to tell um, about, you know, medical updates, about uh, numbers of kids, um, about accurate record keeping, about sharing a medical information between families and donors. So I think, you know, the most stunning stories are those which highlight the fact that this industry has lied to both parents and donors and continues to lie to parents and donors and still will not look at anonymity, how it affects families, and most importantly, how it affects the donor-conceived person. 
how just from one personal example, how has it affected you and Ryan where you keep finding new relatives? I mean, blood related people who relate to the same donor. So when he finds out this number 20, how how do you guys react? Well, I think Ryan's half siblings have a, a there's a variance of reaction. Some are really happy, some are uncomfortable, and everything in between. But the problem is that most, almost all of Ryan's new half-siblings over the last year, year and a half, those 12 new ones all found out through DNA testing that they were donor-conceived. Oh, so you so are they that, older or because they're taking- They're all in their 20s. Adult. Oh, makes sense. Mm -hmm. So now you have, it gets complicated because it isn't like, oh, I've been searching for all these years. It's, wait a minute, what? I have how many half siblings? I don't have any half siblings. Did they even know they were donor conceived to start or was that also a surprise for some of them? Oh, So double dealing with the issues, yeah. That you're learning, you're learning your donor right. conceived, and suddenly that you have a lot of half siblings out there. Right, but you have to realize this is an industry who counseled all of these parents to never tell. So, for example, my sons have siblings. All of them came from, well, almost all of them came from two parent families. You know, and what we see is that the shame of infertility gets passed along as the shame of donor conception. This still goes on wherever you have a non-bio parent, like an egg donation family and in a sperm donation family, excluding LGBT. But wherever there's a parent dealing with infertility, if that is not dealt with at the very beginning and healed and, uh, you know, somehow managed within the person, then that shame of infertility gets passed along into secrecy and shame of donor conception. And that's what we've seen in a lot of Ryan's half-siblings is that these kids were never told because it was a shameful family secret. So then when they find out, then they're still under the umbrella of shame and don't tell anybody this is something we're embarrassed of, you know, because secrecy implies shame. So, right. I mean, it's so impossible. All these kids are struggling. I'm curious. It's impossible to, to know if history had been different. But do you think if your marriage had stayed intact, that you would also been under that pressure to to not tell and kind of live under this kind of presume that he was a genetic father or do you feel confident that you would have you still would have you had read the book you would have been out there telling him we told everybody from when we got pregnant that's great (laughs) so yeah it was never a secret because Mm -hmm. I mean you know in my mind why would it be like there was nothing to be ashamed of why would it be a secret yeah um but you know um I get it um, but also, you know, when I talk to, when I counsel with recipient parents who are just beginning the journey, that's the first thing I tell them is you got to work it out internally. If there's any discomfort, shame, sadness, anything that you have surrounding infertility, you have to do that work before you have your child. Now is the time to do that because you don't want to take those emotions and those feelings and pass those along to your child. That's not fair. Um, So, you know, that's the first thing I tell parents because if they're not ashamed um, and they have come made peace with their infertility and made peace with the fact that they're using a donor, And their child will have different genetics than them. They won't have a genetic connection. Once you make peace with it, then there's no need for secrecy. Uh, And then a lot of the problems, then you can be open and honest with your child. And we know that families fare so much better when their foundation is based on truth, not on on a lie that's a pretty substantial lie. Yeah. And the secrets coming out are pretty mind blowing. I I think one big one that I know I've seen you talk about too, is I think you've even like made kind of a joke like, Oh, you found out you're donor conceived. It's probably your your mom's doctor, <laughs> which is a terrible thing to say. Doctor. Exactly, I was about to say the doctor. <laughs> these new stories and this reality with DNA testing that so many people are finding that it wasn't like one one bad doctor using his reproductive material, but kind of a lot of them were clearly doing this, where they said 
either we're using your your spouse's genetic material or we're using a donor and then they're really using their own. What have you what are your thoughts or what have you seen on that on that area? Yeah, this is nothing new. So we've seen this for many years when older people come to the donor sibling registry. So those born usually before sperm banks came to be. So before the mid 1980s. What I've told these people for years is the very first place you need to look is to your mother's doctor because more often than not that's what it is. So it's or if they were at a university one of their medical students, yeah. Well, all the parents were told it was a medical yeah. student. But, you know, yeah. what we've seen yeah. is that, you know, in many cases it was the doctor um in you know, one case, all of the parents were told that it was medical student. And what this large group of half siblings has come to realize now is that um, the doctor had uh, a janitor or handyman type person. Oh, and every goodness. night when he'd come to the office, oh he'd leave a deposit. So all oh these people goodness. who thought they came from a doctor came from the handyman, the janitor. Wow. Right. Or I have another, um, this is actually a friend of mine, um, and he and all of his half-siblings, they were also told they came from a medical student. And what they've come to know is they came from an unknowing dad who was visiting the clinic for infertility reasons. What? Right. And so would give samples because him and his wife couldn't get pregnant and they were just doing a lot of infertility tests. All of these half siblings were born from his deposits. I mean, he didn't donate. He was uh, unknowing. Oh my goodness. Right. And so now these half siblings have connected with this guy's kids through DNA and they're all utterly stunned. And this guy um, is no longer living, but imagine how he would feel to know that, um, you know, he had a dozen children out there that he created unknowingly. Wow. So, I mean, this wow. industry has just been really all along, very unethical, very irresponsible. And we think like, oh, well, now it's decades later. Surely things are run more ethically and responsibly. But th in fact, they're really not. Um, this whole industry is just, you know, it's story after story that come out that show consistently it's profit before ethics. This is about selling gametes. This is about a multi-billion dollar industry selling gametes. So there really has been no room for ethics and responsibility and looking at what's in the best interests of the very people that they're helping to create. Yeah. Do you have capability to deal with, because um, embryo donation is obviously becoming a much bigger, um, is that a subsection on your site or do you just have a way to basically have people who would have two donors on there? Of course. Of course, yeah. So we're people can come on who used a sperm donor, an egg donor, or an embryo. And if they used an embryo, we ask them to add a posting for the embryo donation. And then, of course, because it, what really matters is who gave the egg, who gave the sperm. I mean, if a kid wants to know their genetic medical background, you got to go to the egg and the sperm. So we tell people really, you know, try and get that information from your clinic because you need to post under the sperm donor and the egg donor as well. Right. And then the third party, of course, that the embryo donor is going to have the genetic sibling to the people that they donated to as well. So you, then you're starting to have even more parties involved in this. Of course, then you would have three postings. But a lot of people have multi-postings because we know in our research that between 22 and 27 percent of sperm donors donate to more than one clinic. So a lot of times, you know, people are finding out that their donor donated to three clinics, five clinics. We have one sperm donor who donated to 17 clinics. So we're trying to put the pieces together there. And then if you use an egg donor, maybe she donated at a few clinics as well, which is not uncommon. So people are always trying to figure out, okay, where else could my half siblings be posted? What other clinics might they be? What other donor number might this be? So we're, we're trying to make sense of this really chaotic 
industry with no central record keeping, no central donor numbers. Um, so people come to the DSR and it's like, you know, you have to put your detective hat on. Okay, maybe if I do a search on the DSR, sometimes it's easy. If you do a search for a six foot five astrophysicist, yeah, you can find that guy on three different donor lists. And you can search that way. Have, Assuming he was actually truly a six foot five astrophysicist as well, right? <laughs> right. And, but if you have a donor who's five foot 10, brown hair, brown eyes, and a medical student, good luck. <laughs> you know, there's, there's probably 400 of those on the DSR. Wow. And uh, DNA testing we've touched on, but that's got to just opened everything so wide and kind of changed what you're seeing because so many more people now find out that they're a donor conceived and are looking for, for answers. What, I mean, what are you seeing with the interaction between the, the rise of um, direct to consumer DNA tests and the donor sibling registry? Right. So, I mean, this is not new. We've been waving our arms about this since 2005. So, and, and still, when I go to the conferences and I talk to sperm banks, like I'm still waving my arms and they're still not listening. So, in 2005, my son found his donor through DNA testing. We knew that was a game changer. We started telling everybody there is no such thing as anonymity, not with DNA testing. Any donor can be found. So if you think you're going to be anonymous for 18 years, you better think again. So we knew that the commercial DNA testing sites, I mean, we were helping people on the DSR from 2005, but we knew there'd be a tipping point with commercial DNA testing. And that came maybe three, four years ago when it became a thing, you know, turn on the TV and every other ad is for Ancestry, 23andMe. So Buy it for your family member Apparently for it was like one of the exactly. top, top gifts for last Christmas or uh, must be incredibly popular. Well, Groups like my son's, we know that after Christmas, like in January, you're going to get some half siblings because now it happens every year. So whenever there's a sale, you can count to three to six (laughs) weeks after and know that you're going to get some half siblings. It's just the way it goes. So, um, right. So, but the, I mean, the stunning thing is, is the industry still sells every gamete, every egg, every sperm as anonymous. And it's stunning to me. How can they keep doing this? It's like, if we just don't say it so, then it won't be so. And we don't have to be honest with donors who we're still promising anonymity to. Parents, they're still buying anonymous donors. You know, you have a choice. You can buy an 18-year anonymous donor or anonymous donor forever. And that's, both of those are insane because there's no anonymity, not for 18 years and not forever. Uh, One of the things that's kind of, I found mind blowing is these cases that are coming out where parents who use a donor find out there's some kind of serious genetic issue that they find is clearly tied to the donor and they tell the sperm bank and I get them wanting, you know, credible, you know, reports. But when you get those reports, it seems like you need to stop like selling that sperm, right? And there's been just big groups where there's been multiple, multiple reports, it sounds like, of issues, and they've basically been ignored by the the sperm banks. Correct. Yeah. That's been the case all along. And that's why whenever we can get people to go to the media, because at the beginning we thought, oh, once we get these cases out in the public eye, then the sperm banks will be shamed into making changes, into doing the right thing. But it, like, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I mean, we've had case after case after case of medical issues, genetic issues, where information was called in and not shared. Uh, a donor continues to be sold after many families have reported the medical issue. I mean, just can you case after case of of wrong can you share some of those cases that stood out to you fatal heart condition you have a child uh with a fatal heart condition the kind of heart condition where you see these high school football players drop dead out on the field uh that kind of condition that there's screening there's preventative care but yet families cannot share and update this information with each other my own son he had a medical issue that he struggled with for 5 years he called and he finally found a, a, a medicine 
that helped. He called California Cryobank and said, hey, I've had this medical issue for five years. I know there are genetic components to it. I have struggled with different therapies and medicines and prescriptions. I finally found something that worked. And so if I could share this with my half-siblings, then maybe I could spare them all those years of struggle that I had to go through. Nope. They would not allow him to share the information. And after connecting with a bunch of these new half-siblings, there's more than a few of them who also are on this medication who finally got there. So even in that case, yeah, he could have saved them like heartache and struggle and discomfort. Um, But California Cryobank will do everything. They just will not allow people to share and update medical information with each other. And it's not just them, it's all the sperm banks. People call in medical information They're promised, oh yeah, we will share this with the families. Well, first of all, you don't know who the families are. They don't know all the families. They don't know all the kids that are created from any one donor. They don't have accurate record keeping. And then the families will connect on the DSR and the family will say, they have my email address. They have my contact information. I even called them and said, are there any medical updates on our donor? And they told me no. And that's after the first family called in a medical issue. So they're not honest. They lie over and over and over to families because it's, again, profit before ethics. It's about liability. So if they just don't share these medical issues, they're less likely to be sued later on. So what's the answer? (laughs) I'm sure you've had a lot of time thinking about that. What what, What can be done? Well, there needs to be some kind of oversight and some kind of regulation. But the problem is the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, they're the people who are supposed to be setting recommendations. They are the sperm banks. They are the egg clinics. So you've got the fox watching the hen house. And if you look, there have been a few types of regulation that have come down the pike for having a registry, keeping track of the number of kids, limiting the number of kids for any donor. And the ASRM, consistently squelches, and they have money and lobbyists, they squelch any kind of regulation that comes down the pike. So the ASRM, which is the the industry itself, is keeping any and all regulation and oversight from happening. And they're big, they're powerful, and they're wealthy, and they have lobbyists. So as long as the ASRM keeps fighting against any kind of forward movement and ethics and responsibility, nothing will change. Okay, so if you're the little guy and you're turning to a donor, what do you, what do you tell that person? You, you can't fight the ASRM, you're just wanting to form a family. What's your advice to that, that person who calls you? Do your homework. Read the don't read the information on the donor sibling registry. Read the user testimonial. So, if you're choosing a sperm bank, if you go to their website, you're reading advertising. You're reading their marketing materials. You're reading things that contain falsities about you know how ethical and upstanding they are. If you really want to know how a sperm bank acts and and their conduct. Read the user experiences on the donor sibling registry. Listen to the parents and the donors on the donor conceived people who have actually had interactions with the sperm banks. If you want to know what they're all about, who better to ask than people who have experienced them, not just at the front door when they're trying to make a sale, but one year after the fact, two years, 10 years, 15, 20, 30 years after the fact, how do they handle issues after they make the sale? And that will tell you about their ethics and, and their code of conduct. So I would say, read the donor sibling registry, um, look at the user comments, um, read the research, look at what's important to donor-conceived people, um, educate yourself about them before you go, you create one. You know, you should know what matters to donor-conceived people. What have they struggled with? How can I be the best parent that I can be, um, you know, considering that I'm, I'm going to use a donor? How can I do this uh, that keeps the best interests of the child I'm about to create first and foremost in my mind? 
And then for that call where it's, you know, it's too late, you just found out your donor conceived and you're lost and confused. Where do you, same thing, go to your website or is there other, other thoughts that you share with those who are, who are turning to you? Call me, (laughs) you know, I would say for people, email me and call me and I get emails and calls all day long from people who just found out and they're shocked. Um, so I know how to have these conversations. I think I can make people feel better. The, the first thing that I tell everybody is whatever feelings you're having, whatever emotions you're having, they're completely normal and you are not alone. You are with a very large community of people who have walked this path before you, um, who have, they've all survived, you know, everybody's okay. You'll be okay too. This is the bumpy part of the road. And, you know, we can help you through it as, you know, me personally and us as a community. Yeah. Are there other resources that you're often pointing them to? Are there support groups? Are there um, other places that they, they can kind of find community and support? No, no, there are. I, I mean, I wish there were. I wish I had some place to tell people. There are a few donor conceived okay. groups yeah. on the internet, but what okay. I've, the reports that I get is that they're very angry people. And I'm not saying they don't have the right to be angry, but they're very donor, con, anti donor conception, anti, you know, they're very, very angry. And what that tells me is that they haven't, been able to adequately process through the anger because anger is one of the emotions that's not uncommon, but it's one of the, it's one of the emotions you can process through to get to a place of peace and acceptance. Um, so for a lot of donor conceived people, when they land on the angry page, it just feeds into their own discomfort. It's not a good and safe landing place for them. So I just, I don't point people there. Like, you know, after you kind of get settled and things kind of level out, yeah, maybe do exploring and see, you know, if you're still carrying some anger, it might be interesting to see how other people carry that anger. But I think as a landing place, you want to land somewhere softer than that. So, um, you know, so no, I don't point people to the donor offspring groups on the internet. And do you consider yourself anti-donor conception? No, no way. How could I be without, you know, I don't know. Maybe I would be really, yeah. <laughs> who knows? Well, I would be really hypocritical because I wouldn't have my son without donor conception. But that said, now that we know how this industry runs, I think I can be thankful for having my donor conceived child and at the same time want this industry to be run more ethically and responsibly. Those are two, so, those are, those can be two yes, parallel right. thoughts held Definitely. at the same time, you know? Um, have you ever thought of starting your own sperm bank and doing it the way you think they should be done? Yeah. Look at my very, per- <laughs> my very first Huffington Post blog called the ethical um, sperm bank. And that's what I would call it. The ethical sperm okay. bank. Um, and we've had many meetings about it, you know, because oh, yeah. we Is it, is it a right possibility way. in the future? Um, if somebody can come with millions of dollars, sure. Oh, <laughs> okay. Any listeners with <laughs> millions of dollars? Wendy's right here. Well, we would, I mean, now we would know, we know how to do it the right way. And we would do it the same way that the egg clinics are doing it, where parents and donors would connect right from pregnancy and birth and have that option. And that would be the number one thing that our sperm bank would do because, not, I mean, I have taken this idea. I've put it out there publicly. We just need one sperm bank to do this and the rest would follow. And not one single sperm bank will even consider connecting parents and donors right from pregnancy or birth. Uh, so thank you so much. Any closing thoughts or message or story that we, we, you wanted to get out there that we didn't get a chance to get to. Yeah, I guess, you know, I'm going to plug, I have a, I have two books. Uh One is for adults called finding our families and it's for donor conceived people and parents and donors. It's the book I wish somebody would have given me, you know, maybe 
when I was pregnant or had a toddler or a child. And then last year, we also put out a children's book um, for donor-conceived people because all of the kids' books that we saw, basically the last page was always, and then you were born, as if that's the end of the story. (laughs) And nobody addressed the topics of half-siblings and donors and curiosity. And so we wanted to normalize that for children to say, and for parents to not be afraid of curiosity, um, to kind of normalize it and say, yeah, you might have half-siblings out there and it's okay to be curious about them and want to meet them. And same with your donor. It's not, it shouldn't be threatening to parents if a if a parent has a curious child. Um, We have too many donor-conceived people who come to the donor-sibling registry behind their parents' backs because they're afraid that it would be like a betrayal to their parent. And what that tells me is that parents haven't done the right, they haven't finished the job. They haven't let their kids know that being curious or wanting to connect with genetic relatives is not threatening. It's not going to make them any less apparent. There's nothing to be afraid of. So the book was really, it's a kid's book, but it's really for parents to kind of lighten up on being, feeling threatened or afraid of your child's, uh, you know, curiosities and just wanting to know about the other half of themselves. Mm-hmm. And every, people can find those on the donor sibling registry as well. Absolutely. Or Amazon. They can just look for my name and, and <laughs> the two Amazon. books will come up. Yep. Okay. Well, Wendy Kramer, Donor Sibling Registry, those are your keywords. Thank you, Wendy, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Wendy, for being such a great resource and for such an advocate for children can see from from donor um, from donors and Absolutely. really just being there for them. Yeah. No, it's fantastic. And speaking of being there for people, haha. Um <laughs> You all can be there for us by leaving us iTunes reviews, or you can give us a call and let us know how you feel about any given episode. Uh, 303-997-1903 is our recording line, and we we really do listen to them, I swear. Uh, If you email us, we will also respond, we promise. Uh, And we just love to hear from everybody and hear what you you think and who you want to be on here with us, because we... Honestly, we, we, we don't get all that feedback from you guys. Like we can't see you while you're listening. So we want to know what, what do you want to know about anything assisted reproductive technology? Um, but we then also need to thank everybody, right? <laughs> yes. This is next. Always important. Yes. Very important to thank people. So thank Chris at Work at Bird Studios to Tyler, Ashley, Lexi, all the people on our team who help us get this out there. And um, Amanda. Thanks, Amanda. Amanda, especially Amanda. I was saving her to build up to it. Thank you. But definitely Amanda. But thank you. Thank you to everybody for, no, listeners. And listeners. And you guys. Thank you.